1: Hey everybody! Welcome to this the seventeenth episode of Culture Caucus, Bloomberg Politics a podcast about the intersection of politics and culture. I am John Heilman, and I am Will Leach, and we are the co-hosts of this podcast. Hi, Will. How are you?
2: I am mirthful. I am uh, uh, mirthful is probably too strong of a word, but I am in Cleveland, Ohio. I just last night attended the the tr- endless. Game 2 of the World Series, which the Cubs tied the series uh, with the Indians. The game went about four and a half hours in nine innings with constant pitching changes and dreary rain. I, people it, it was one of the first World Series games I've ever been to where a ton of people left before right. it was over, despite paying like nine hundred dollars for tickets.
1: Right. I know you hate the Cubs. And so watching them win is painful for you. But that game, even if you were a Cubs fan, was painful to watch. I, I was watching it from home last night. I was like, man, once Arietta lost his no hitter, I was like, who gives a fuck about this game? Jesus it's going on forever.
2: Yeah, baseball. Baseball's made a big push for the pace of game rules. They're going to put in a pitch clock and a lot yeah. of stuff. And this will be game two of the World Series will be exhibit A as to why they're going to try to push that because it was it it was ugly. Another kind of fascinating thing that's happened too is the Indians being uh, getting this kind of high exposure in the World Series has definitely called a ton of stuff into question about their mascot, <laughs> about Chief Wahoo. I don't know if you saw during the telecast, but there was there was a um, there was a shot of a guy dressed up in full Native American, uh, like some old white guy in like full Native American head- headdress with like, he'd put, he'd, he'd made it, he, it was, his face was near blackface. It was caught on like Fox television. And uh, Commissioner Rob Banford said before the game, we're going to talk to the Indians in the offseason about their mascot. And I think yeah. uh, the the downside for Cleveland in the wor- being in the World Series is uh, I, I think something's going to be done about that mascot.
1: Right. That's, uh, that's interesting. Um, I'm going to hopefully see you in Chicago. Uh, I'm going to make make a real I'm going to knock myself out to try to get there for game 5 because it seems to me like seeing a world series game in Wrigley is something that one should do if one is capable of doing it. So, hopefully we'll be together in that fabulous city that you hate so much, Chicago. I love
2: Chicago. Um, I don't love the Cubs, but I do love the city of Chicago. Okay, I'm not I, a
1: monster. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're not. Well, you are sort of a monster, but um, <laughs> uh that's for other reasons altogether. So, hey, so this episode of the Culture Caucus is going to be um Really great, and you know, sometimes I really look forward to talking to you. Actually, I almost always look forward to talking to you. But you know, the one, the other thing that I delight in this podcast is the kind of people who we get to come on, um, who are you know orthogonal in some ways to the world of politics, Uh, but to talk up with them about the intersection of politics and the thing that they are uh, known for. Today's guest is uh, someone who I have wanted to do an interview with literally for and I say literally not in the Joe Biden sense, meaning figuratively, but I mean, literally for 25 years, Um, uh, that guy who was one of my heroes uh, in when I was younger and remains one of my heroes today, uh, Fab Five Freddy, who, uh, as as anybody who has any remote connection to uh, music uh, in general and hip hop in specific, uh, was the host and the progenitor of the seminal television show on MTV, Yo MTV Raps, a show that started in the late 1980s and was, A, the thing that kind of broke the color line at MTV, introduced black artists in kind of a significant way on MTV. Number two, brought hip-hop to MTV. And then when Yo MTV Raps went global, uh, took hip-hop out of America and made it into the potent cultural export that it became. I mean, Yo MTV Raps, uh, I moved to London in 1990. Uh, very end of 1990, early 1991, and that's what was right around the time that UMTV raps uh, went global. And I have to say, I mean, I don't know that I've ever experienced uh, in such a pointed, clear way the uh, the way in which American cultural influence sweeps across the globe as it did in that instance, because it was one show that was suddenly on the air in all over Europe, and people were like, "Whoa, this hip hop thing." And it just, like, you could see hip-hop wash across the European continent and and the United Kingdom, basically on the back of Fab Five Freddy and that show.
2: Yeah, you know, I was a a high school kid in rural Illinois. I had no idea that any of that existed. And so, I mean, and also MTV was showing, like, like Peter Gabriel, no offense to Peter Gabriel, who I like. I think we all like Peter Gabriel, but we don't necessarily think of Peter Gabriel as, you know, the seminal rock star. <laughs> but like that was yeah. what MTV. Like that was the MTV stars at that point. And I think, uh, you know, we'll talk to him about this. But MTV, MTV, kind of famously, they were even hesitant to put Michael Jackson and Prince videos right. on for a long time. So right. they had some major issues with the with the with the way that they dealt with uh, with black music, and that was very. It was a breakthrough in so many ways and issues. I always think about this. The power of MTV was always to like get into every home in America, pe- then introduce them to people that you would have never known otherwise. I would have never known about hip hop. I would have never known about Nirvana. I would have never known about all of these things right. that really changed my life and changed the world because right. of because of MTV. And 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 to me, uh, MTV Raps is the MTV raps is the the pivotal seminal moment in that.
1: Yeah, it's funny, you know, I mean, it's hard to talk to people now about MTV and how important it was because, of course, MTV is now, it's still obviously a going concern, but it has nothing like the kind of cultural importance and sway that it did back in those days. Um, you know, Yo! MTV Raps wasn't the only uh, element. It was, you know, there was a, there was such a genius uh, at that time when the music industry was still uh, intact and, and powerful in a way it's not now, having invented a, a form at MTV, which was In which the commercials were the content, right? The videos were um, were the content for the channel. It's what they played all day long, and each one of them was a commercial for the band. That was an amazingly kind of potent thing, um, and an economic model that worked extraordinarily well both for MTV and for the record labels and their artists for a period of time. And you know, certainly, you know, again, you know, it's it's now beyond cliche to talk about how hip hop uh, broke out of. Uh, It's it's particular cultural milieu, which is to say urban African-American America and became, you know, the the sound of the suburbs and a large part of the way in which that happened. The white suburbs, a large part of the way that happened was UMTV raps and Fab Five Freddy Fab is a was a was a huge figure in the history of uh, downtown avant garde New York City. In the nineteen seventies and the nineteen eighties. He was a guy he did music videos. He was a painter. He did all this stuff. He hung out with Blondie and and a lot of the new wave bands from the late seventies and early eighties. And he then emerged as kind of a pioneering figure and architect in in the at the very beginning of what was, you know, the hip hop era and the hip hop movement. And the thing that I remember was that how you knew that he mattered um, so much was As I as I say, watching the influence of UMTV raps happen on the ground, but then looking up one day, and I remember this so vividly. Looking up one day and seeing that Susan Orlean had written a profile of Fab in the New Yorker, um, in about 1990 or 1991, that was about 10,000 words long, and it said it basically declared Fab Five Friday to be the coolest person in New York City. And I thought to myself, (laughs) man. What the fuck? Like, what, what would be better than that? Like, like Susan <laughs> Orlean writing a piece in The New Yorker declaring you to be the coolest person in New York City. Like, I just, man, blew me away. And I was like, this is a guy who's got some a different kind of crossover appeal, not just black, white, but also highbrow, lowbrow, middlebrow and nobrow.
2: The only thing that would hurt him there would be, I think, uh, does it hurt your street cred if you're if Susan Orlean – it's awesome for us, but does it hurt your street cred to be like, oh, hey, listen, listen guys, I'm awesome. Susan Orlean wrote something about The New Yorker. Like, well, yeah, man. like I wonder if that, that hurt with the, with the street cred. But it's funny though one of the things I loved about him, too, and we'll talk about this, too, is that he was kind of an ambassador on the early days of UMTV Raps, the notion that that he was – it's funny that he's such a cool guy, but to watch like kind of old clips of him, he – almost sees himself as a reporter introducing us to – to Tupac, or introducing us to the Wu Tang Clan, like right. he, like he took that notion of, you know what, I am gonna introduce millions of people who would not know otherwise to these incredible artists. It's, I feel like this responsibility to do it, right. and I think, uh, I, I think you see his influence uh, across uh, all over the country and all over the culture, uh, pretty much every day.
1: Yeah, so it's gonna be great. I'm really looking forward to having Fab on the on the pod here. Um, uh, like I said, I've been wanting to do it for a really long time, and I've gotten to know him just a little bit here in New York City. Um, and uh, talking to him about uh, some of the history we've just been talking about, but also talking to him about this election, um, what uh, the the kind of intersection of this election, Black Lives Matter, um, what hip-hop has to say about Donald Trump at this point, um, et cetera, et cetera. And frankly, what kind of New York, I mean, beyond the hip-hop connection, the truth is Fab is just a kind of quintessential New Yorker. I mean, he's, you know, New York, born and raised, a Brooklyn kid, uh, who came up and and has been a fixture in the city and understands uh, the social strata of the city as well as as anybody, very acute social observer. So we'll talk to him about a little bit about that kind of stuff too. But I want to ask you, Will, about this. You know, uh, th- one of the things I want to ask Fab about is something that has been in my mind for the entire year. You know, there's no doubt that uh, you know hip hop is is the last. Great American art form, and it's it's a huge cultural force. It's obviously transformed over time. When I came up and became a hip hop fan, it was a lot of what attracted me to it was the social consciousness of it and the politics of it. So I was a huge Public Enemy fan. Um, I was a huge fan of of a lot of the uh, acts that were kind of socially conscious, Tribe Called Quest, Jungle Brothers, um, bands like uh, hip hop acts like that, Um, and. And, and, and Public Enemy in particular, you know, it's, it's again, you think back to the late 80s, you know, when, when, when Fight the Power was the song that Spike Lee put at the center of, She's Got, of, 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 of um, Do the Right Thing. You think about uh, Welcome to the Terror Dome. Um, you think about all the songs and albums in that era and how controversial and just how relevant Public Enemy was. I mean, you had those songs uh, were, were the subject of fierce public debate and contention. Um, and they were seen as being in the vanguard of a political movement, of being genuinely radical. Uh, they, they were part of the moment when, again, to decide a Spike Lee movie, when Malcolm X had his kind of resurgence and came back into vogue, when people talked a lot about the resurgence of, of a new black power movement. I mean, they were, A, a huge part of the cultural discussion, and B, were seen as hugely threatening um, to a lot of white uh, cultural commentators, a lot of white journalists. Um, again, Spike Lee was in that category, too. It's interesting to me that in this moment when uh, it's a sign to me of how much things have changed, both in hip-hop and in the world, that uh, in this moment when Donald Trump is the Republican nominee, um, hip-hop has not been uh, a giant force in this election. We haven't heard, we can talk a little bit about the ones that there have been, the songs that there have been, but it's, you know... If, this, if Donald Trump had been the Republican nominee in 1988 or 1989, Public Enemy would have done uh, a succession of double albums, basically, focused on denouncing Donald Trump. And there would have been fierce debate in the pages of Time and Newsweek and all over the place about, uh, about Public Enemy and, and the, the, the hip-hop uh, counterreaction to Donald Trump. And yet, mostly, in 2016, when it comes to uh, the hip-hop community, there's been Donald Trump and crickets
2: yeah you know and I it's I you you talk about public enemy it might uh, not to give a plug to my friend but my friend Tim Grierson who I uh, review movies with for the New Republic and we have a podcast there he wrote a book about public enemy called inside the terror dome that yeah. really tracks this exact time and you know public enemy lasted for so long that there was a radio station in Los Angeles that the day after Barack Obama was elected uh, played brothers gonna work it out on loop all day right. the, the day after <laughs> the election like it was just it really because you know that that song while certainly there was was a lot of anger and you'll know, fight the power and so on there was also there was hope in their music and right. there, there, there was certainly and i feel like that song is actually very indicative of, uh, of that idea and yeah you don't see that so much but it's also worth remembering that public enemy was not a great seller either <laughs> like like family black planet sold pretty well and nation of millions did okay and and um, yeah, music in our message was all right but these were you know these were never chart-topping things and the reason i say that is i feel like there's the, there is a lot of good Protest music now. I think Fat Fab, Freddy. I want to ask him about this too. But I also feel like we're so we're so diverse in in our options uh, when it comes to music that it's hard for anything to break through. I remember when uh, when when Eminem came out with Mosh, which is which was about uh, in two thousand four, which is about President Bush, and it was it was supposed to be this big angry song and, and about screw him and his wars and people just kind of like yawned. And I think that we, we don't have the, I think society has made a decision on what it, on, uh, in, a, in a world where we can now quantify much better we ever can, the, the physical popularity of things. I think they've made a decision that they like these things separate. <laughs> and I'm sad to say, yeah. and I think that, that and and all, and another factor is I think too, I also frankly think that a lot of young artists that would be angry uh, about Donald Trump, frankly, aren't doing backflips about Hillary Clinton either. And I think that, I think there's an ask, not not to say that like, I think like a lot of people, they'll be saying, yep, we're not gonna, we're not gonna be with Trump. We're not gonna support that guy. But, you know, a lot of, a lot of protest music is, it still has to be based in something positive moving forward. I wonder if, for example, if Bernie Sanders would have gotten the nomination, if you might have seen more of this, Killer Mike would have done an amazing song for Bernie, to to, to say the least. So I think there there might have been more of that, but I wonder if that's a factor of it too. Is it, it's not so much that it's one thing to be against Donald Trump, but I think the general argument is when it comes to this specific election is, yeah, maybe you're against Donald Trump, but you know. Is, is is this the type of thing where you feel like there's a great cause to be for or a great candidate to be for or is it just Donald Trump is almost too ridiculous even to almost
1: parody in that way? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, it, yes. I mean, you point to something important. Obviously, it's something we've discussed on this podcast before. Right. The notion of of uh, one of the defining facts of our lives now uh, in terms of cult- cultural consumption is the notion of fragmentation and yeah. atomization and the fact that, you know, there isn't, you know, there, there are very few things, whether it's not just a hip hop, it's just in any genre that break through um, beyond, you know, some, you know, the Taylor Swift's some pop music that occasionally breaks through uh, in the way where it's like just a big mass, huge hit. Um, and, and people it like grabs the, the 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 attention and the consciousness of the culture in a big way, but it's it's increasingly rare and, and harder to do. And you know, and the truth is that I, I bet you know I say this in a self critical way. You know, I bet if I were uh, twenty five years old and doing what I did when I was twenty five years old, which was you know sp- spending a vast amount of time um, emerged and submerged uh, not emerged but submerged in various uh, musical subcultures. I'm sure there's some great uh, anti Trump hip hop out there um that is uh, that is kind of below the radar um but it's again it's the f- function of our time that it's hard for those things to kind of grab uh the, the 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 culture by the lapels and sort of shake it and kind of get the kind of attention on it that it might have in other circumstances um you know one of the things i, I will say you know there, there are there are two kind of counter examples to this that that well what w- is a is a genuinely brilliant piece of work and the other is less brilliant, but um, speaks to, uh, is the counter example to my notion that this is not really happening. There is, I, I'm sure you remember that, uh, the track by YG and Nipsey Hussle um, that came out this summer, which was called FDT, uh, which is, and then in parentheses, fuck Donald Trump. Now, I will say that, you know, obviously there are a lot of African Americans who feel exactly that, fuck Donald Trump. Um, but you know, as a piece of artistry, you know, you think about, you know, Public Enemy and, and, and as a good, as a good touchstone here, you know, and the complexity of what, uh, what they were doing. Um, and then you, you think about YG and Nipsey and, and, you know, you got a, a couple of, you got a video with a bunch of black kids, uh, with their middle fingers up, uh, just emphatically kind of saying over and over again, fuck Donald Trump, fuck Donald Trump, fuck Donald Trump. Again, cathartic, but not maybe at the level of lyrical. Uh, complexity and sophistication that uh, some of their forebears in the realm of political hip hop were uh, famous for.
2: Yeah, it's that that song is fun and cathartic, but you know it's gonna not last. It's probably the best way to put that. I don't think that's a song in ten years we're gonna be like, oh man, that was a classic. Like it's a silly song, and I you know I I wonder I wonder if that's part of it too. Is also Trump has come on us. It's. I, I, I think music is not any different than anything in any other realm when it's come to Trump. It's just – every day It's just something that, that – it almost feels like you could do a different song about Trump every day if you find the right freestyle uh, guy. But it almost feels like it's almost so overwhelming. What can you – it's the same problem I've, I've, I think that everybody's had a little bit when it comes to the Trump phenomenon. There's always a man. What can I even add to this idea? That what can I say? This that doesn't you know the, the Marco Rubio problem. Like how do I get involved with this that doesn't drag me down with it? And and I th- I think there's a, there's a factor in that too. You know uh, to talk in in uh, one, well, I think one of the more prominent protest songs, which is not from hip hop, uh, uh, one of the al- albums has come from the Drive By Truckers. who they have a they have a new band called right. uh, album called American Band, right. which is very much a it's a clear protest to Donald Trump and the current movement that's going on uh, with, with kind of the alt-right in this country. But also it's worth noting, that is on brand for them. They're yeah. like a Southern band that's known sure. as being more thoughtful than that. So I wonder, like, they're able to still kind of, they're what they're doing is a culmination, really, of kind of decades of work with that band. It's a terrific album, and I think yeah. it's a sort of protest album that people are looking for. Yeah. But it's also not going to, like, shock anyone to learn that the Drive-By Truckers would make an album like that. Yeah,
1: Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. It's actually now that you mentioned, it, it's actually Patterson Hood would be a good person to have on this podcast or uh, on the TV um, because you know, drive-by truckers are awesome and that record is very, very strong. Um, You know, the other thing I that that, you know was worth kind of pointing out is I think in the context of hip hop, it's interesting of the fact that you know um, for a long time uh, Trump was seen in the world of hip-hop as kind of a was, was name-checked mostly positively right people weren't that familiar with some of the things that have now been that we now know i mean like like not that they were secret but you know the notion of trump as, as someone who practiced racial discrimination in housing or I was accused of, of doing that the notion that uh that trump you know was before you know long uh, you know back when he was more associated with the apprentice Uh, than the birther movement for instance right you had a lot of hip-hop acts that would name check trump in a positive way you know he was like you know he was a a kind of garish symbol of like just bling 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 right so you know you'd have the hip-hop tracks uh that talked about how great he was because he was rich or talked about the apprentice or talked about his hotels or whatever you know he was not a a figure of hate um but now that he's associated more with this kind of alt-right with nationalism with outright racism you see he's more of a target, right, than he was before. But again, there's just not been that much. I, th- I believe that YG, Nipsey song, was really like the first song that kind of like went negative on Trump. Um, to me, I will say that uh, putting aside that track, the one big exception, it seems to me, um, in the world of, of music to this, um, to, 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 to the, a, a, gra- a genuinely great piece of work. I um, mean, you mentioned the guy uh, earlier, a great piece of work that's, that's politically relevant to this election that has come out. Only one thing that I can think of, which is that amazing, amazing, amazing track that's called Nobody Speak uh, by DJ Shadow and Run the Jewels, right? Which is, you mentioned Killer Mike before. Killer Mike, of course, is part of Run the Jewels. For anybody who hasn't seen it, um, you got to go to YouTube and watch this video, uh, Nobody Speak. It's an incredibly great hip hop track with a beautiful. And, and uh, gripping video attached to it in which you have a bunch of white politicians in, a, in what looks like a Senate hearing room um, who are lip syncing the lyrics to the rap and who end up having a raucous kind of um, uh, chaotic sort of havoc uh, strewn fistfight in this hearing room as they are kind of incapable of having any kind of uh, meaningful, productive conversation and I, I, to me, almost as much as any one piece of political art this year, again, it stands out because it's an exception and it stands out because it's so good. Nobody Speak is a really, really striking thing, and it really encapsulates a lot of uh, what I think is the broad perception of how fucked up and 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 unhelpful the national conversation has been this year. Uh, and and it, it kind of captures it, it, captures it, it renders it and uh you look at it and go okay that's pretty much 2016 in a nutshell you've seen this thing right
2: yeah 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 and it's, it's very it, it has it's it's funny i think about something like that if there were if mtv were what mtv used to be <laughs> that that would be a clip that would be on constant rotation right and now it's, and, but it's funny though now though now that's something that gets shared
1: by people that agree with the band right Yes. and I
2: think I think I think that's a fundamental difference between now and, and maybe the early nineties.
1: Right, it's viral, and so it gets around a lot. But it's viral in a in a kind of in a, a, I want to think about if you marry up virality with epistemic closure, that's what you have in a situation like that, right? Which is essentially like you know, um, uh, it gets passed around among a lot of people, but it's not. Uh, it's it's only really seen by people who are uh, already inclined to be totally uh, into that message, you know? And again, exactly. I see it, you know, like we've seen it, right? But it's not something that like, you know, is, uh, it's not exactly like Billy Jean or beat it. You know, we're like, we're like, you know, everybody and their mother knows what those, uh, is familiar with that, with those videos and could probably do the dance moves still, <laughs> right. even now, like 40 years later.
2: Right. Exactly. You know, I think that, and it's not something that, you, you, it's funny we, we both of us have talked about how important uh, hip hop was at formative times in our lives and to yeah. me you know, I, it, we, you know we, we, uh, we talk about someone like Rage Against the Machine like that would be another band that I saw at a formative t- time in my life yep. and therefore pushed me in a certain direction but with something like this it, it really falls in as, as much as, as great as that, that video is it's another thing that falls into yep me and other people who care about this stuff we've all seen it but i don't know if like a a 16 year old kid that's ready to to uh to be involved and, and hit into this stuff I, I don't know if he's seen it or if, if that's even in his worldview he he's, yeah. he's,
1: he's still on uh, much more, I guess, mainstream ideas. Yeah, right. So now I've got, now in my head, I've got Patterson Hood and then Killer Mike. That's another guy who we should get on this podcast. Maybe we can get them both on the podcast at the same time. And then, of course, there is, and we'll end this conversation now, there is, of course, you know, just because we've been talking about Public Enemy, there is, of course, the fact that Chuck D is part of Prophets of Rage, which is, you know, the the uh, hip-hop metal supergroup that Tom Morello put together that's got, you know, Cypress Hill plus Public Enemy plus uh, Rage. Uh, that which has been touring all summer and uh, doing pretty well. So, you know, hey, maybe like as I started this thing out with the premise that like there's uh, really that the silence is deafening and that it's all crickets. um, You know, maybe there's just a little just enough noise around the edges uh, around this election uh, to prove that uh, the the political impulse in uh, in music, in in music broadly, but more specifically in hip hop, maybe the pulse is still there. Maybe there's just enough there that we don't have to uh, feel total despair about uh, the absence of of, uh, of of informed and and bracing commentary from that world. How about that? Can we end on like on a before we turn to Fab? Can we end on a slightly optimistic note? Will please tell me we can. I, I will take the optimistic note that in this specific instance,
2: despair is not the reaction. Now, in everything else, despair. however, uh, despair is the appropriate reaction. But in this, no, l- less despair. Okay,
1: fantastic. All right, we're going to take a break.
2: Will before we do, um, what's the name of this podcast? I think it's called the culture, ca- ca- the culture caucus. We are the culture caucus podcast. The culture we ca- find this wait here. wait the
1: culture cactus is that what you said? Col- the culture ca- I
2: don't know why you know in, in retrospect caucus would have been a much better word. I don't know why we chose cactus. Culture cactus it's a weird thing to call a podcast. Um, uh, where can you listen to this podcast, Will? You can find it in your ears this second, but if you'd like to share it with other people or point other people to it, the easiest way to find the podcast is to subscribe to us on iTunes and give us a review. It helps people find the podcast. Please do that. Yes, do that. Definitely give us a review. We love hearing nice things about ourselves. Oh, yes. And then, of course, also, you can find us on SoundCloud and BloombergPolitics.com.
1: Awesome. Let's take a little break and come back with Fab Five Freddy. I cannot wait. we're back with the second half of this week's edition of the Culture Caucus Bloomberg Politics podcast about the intersection of politics and culture. I'm John Heilman. And I'm Will Leach. <laughs> Will, uh, you're out there in Cleveland, Will. it's so it was, I, I, We've already just had our baseball discussion in this podcast, so we can move off of that <laughs> and move on to the real topic at hand today, which is our guest. And this is a man um, who... I'm thrilled to have here for a variety of reasons. Um, this is awesome.
2: This is awesome. I'm 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 legitimately starstruck by the by our guest today.
1: Yes, if only you were here in the same room with us, Will, you'd be uh, you'd be on your you'd be on your fainting couches. I'm guess, virtually yeah.
2: connected. You can't see me me sweating and nervous to be in the on uh, the same call.
1: Right as previously advertised, we have with us the great Fab Five, Freddie. Um, Fab, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. It's uh, great to be here. I will say, Will, that the reason this all happened, and I'll tell this story because I think it's just um, it's it tells the whole story. Yeah. I was at um, I was at Hamilton uh, a few months ago, and after the show was over, as some lucky, fortunate people uh, get to go quote backstage. It's not really backstage; you get to go on stage, and you're yeah. standing around on stage waiting for the cast members to come out, and you're all a little starstruck, as I was, you know, kind of waiting to see some of the guys or and gals who are in the show. And uh, I had seen this guy in the lobby at the intermission um, who I said, that guy looks like Fab Five Freddy. I couldn't believe it might actually be Fab Five Freddy. And then he walked up and and said, hey, uh, I I see you on TV, on MSNBC. I like your show. And I was like, are you Fab Five Freddy? And And Fab said, Sometimes. (laughs)
3: Sometimes. <laughs> That's what Fab that said.
1: And I, I, I about, I had a heart attack, and I realized I didn't give a shit about Lin-Manuel Miranda or Leslie Odom Jr. or David Diggs or any of those guys anymore. I was in the presence of, of Fab Five Freddy. And, I, and I, I, for anybody who doesn't know, people, youngsters listening to this program, uh, to this podcast, the reason that Fab meant so much, and I said this to him, Fab will attest, I said this to him. Hmm. I said that I had just done a, a documentary for Rolling Stone about the, about the 90s, and I had uh, talked about various things in the '90s, and 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 then I said that the most important uh, f- cultural force in the 1990s was Yo Raps. It was the thing that had changed the world more than anything that I knew of, mm. and that had led me to thinking about Fab, who mm. was, for those who don't know, the guy, the Yo MTV Raps guy. So we're great, to, glad to have him here today to talk about a whole bunch of stuff. Fab, so I, just tell me, start with this: when you were at you know, MTV raps and popularizing the form of hip hop and mm-hmm. taking it to a global audience. Hip hop was a, was a political force then, you know, mm. there were, there was a lot of, the, there were the very conscious lyrics, yeah. socially conscious, politically conscious. True. Tell me about, just start with that moment and trace it to now. And, and, and you know, hip hop is a different thing now than it was in the heyday that I'm talking about.
3: Yeah. Hip hop is many different things. Um, probably if, uh, humans on this planet started from one cell, which then replicated into different cells with variations, and those cells eventually uh, developed into people that we are now. We have a lot of differences as people, but we still walk and talk and, um, you know, blink our eyes and stuff like that if we're fully among the living. But essentially, I guess the way it is is as hip-hop developed from an infant into a child into a young adult, and all that, and all those incarnations, it expanded, it became more complex, it became multi-leveled and multi-tiered. People often come, and as media has changed dramatically and, and emphatically, we don't just turn to one or two radio stations to look to know what's what, what's hot, or that one or two cool friends that we might have had. Now we have to know where to go on the web or have friends that can point us in the right directions. I mean, when hip-hop developed a conscious voice, once it became a young adult, if you will, that started in the 80s with uh, KRS-One and Public Enemy and those guys were both emerging and developing at that time. Rap had gone from pretty much a nursery rhyme genre to a more braggadocious narrative storytelling genre, these long tall tales of these superhero type dynamic street characters that you know many of us felt like we wanted to be. And then it developed. And, and then it said, okay, I've, I've had enough of playing around. It's time to talk serious. And um, that became the, the point when Yo! MTV Raps was born in 88, uh, KRS-One, the first music, You know, I, for those that don't know, I directed a ton of music videos in that period, right. and the very first music video was my philosophy for KRS-One. But initially, I was trying to get to direct a video for Public Enemy. This is in the late 80s, 87 going into 80, 88, and I wrote concepts for practically every song on their first album which Chuck had spent about 30,000 producing the first album so he's like why should I spend 30,000 for a music video which was a low budget for a music <laughs> video but there wasn't a yo MTV raps at the time so it was all a perfect synergistic you know zeitgeist kind of thing where i had got to direct a music video for krs 1 um, because people had heard i was going to do one for 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 Public Enemy and then i by the end of that summer i'm um, basically hosting UMTV Raps, so that was the fall of 88. And my philosophy, the video I directed was one of the first videos I would air on my show, UMTV Raps, and that was also a transformative moment because I always describe MTV as uh, television apartheid up until the point when they decided to jump into the most uh, extreme version of contemporary culture which happened to be young, black, hip-hop music and, you know... Right. Yeah, so the voice and the tone, that was a sh- yeah. strong thing through the mid-'90s, up into the mid-'90s, the, the conscious, aware political voice of hip-hop, music, and culture.
1: Right. So what? So, but here's my, my, my question is this, right? You know, you've got a moment now in this political campaign, this presidential campaign, that's consuming everybody's attention, everyone's mind. you got a, a Republican nominee who many people uh, regard as a racist demagogue, um, and who has certainly done a lot of things to feed that perception? Um, he it's hard has, hard, yeah. to, hard to know what's in the man's heart, but he said a lot, done a lot of things that are that meet the textbook definition of racist, right? Yeah. You also have uh, a moment where there's a movement out there called Black Lives Matter, yeah, which is you know as uh, 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 an important political social movement uh, response to a lot of police brutality that's happened in a lot of places in the country. I'm I'm surprised that what we have not seen in this year, given those two facts mm. Black lives Matter on one hand, Donald Trump is the Republican nominee on the other, that we have not seen at least in a kind of big way right a, a response, the hip-hop community in 1988, 1992, 1996 mm. would have been all over Donald Trump. Sure. And you would have heard people like Harris, one and Chuck would have been it would have been doing raps. Uh, all throughout a presidential campaign featuring this kind of a nominee true And yet this the hip-hop community now, even at a time when a lot of young African Americans are very politically switched on and mm-hmm. quite radical mm-hmm. is not risen to meet that moment in quite the way that 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 one might have expected it to A do you agree with that and B if you agree with it, why do you think that's
3: true? I agree with that to a certain extent. It kind of connects to where you get your your hip hop because everything is so, fragmented if you will if you're expecting somebody to make a conscious political political record albeit a good record who's not a jay-z or somebody at the top of the heap getting played already or like a drake then you're really not going to hear it on on mainstream radio so it comes down to knowing where to go if you just right now on your computer search underground hip-hop you'll find things online if you search political hip-hop it's the whole thing about the culture we're in now, it's not going to run up and, and and grab you or you're not going to get it from those one or two open windows where our culture would flow into us through, if you will. <laughs> um, making up these little metaphors as I go along. But um, there are people out there. Like I used to point out, when I, you know, this is a, a conversation I have, not in this forum, if you will, by a real live political expert, but people run up, on me yo fab i grew up with you i remember this that and the third and they kind of real pissed about the general outlay of hip-hop music but i always tell them you're not going to get it on the radio you got to know where to go to get what you need like there's a guy named i don't know if he's been that active this election season if you will his name is Jasiri X. Yeah. x j-i-s-i-r I X and he was, I mean the last election cycle, as crazy things were happening, tea party, what have you, he was making videos, um, making songs, making videos, shot on location, demonstrations in DC here and there, having those videos up in a minute's time, great rhymes, great content. It was more of a grassroots way of doing it. Make the music yourself, have your buddy shoot the video, upload it to YouTube, spread it through social media is more the way and the method that I think a conscious artist will. Is it making a profound impact? Like I've heard F Donald Trump record, a really good one by some Southern rappers, a bunch of them on there doing that. But um, luckily, we don't have the FCC here. You can say "fuck Donald Trump" on this podcast. Oh boy, it's <laughs> <Okay. Yeah.
1: laughs> very exciting. In fact, it makes the producer,
3: the producers, get very excited every time I. I'd like an to asshole. say that for the entire duration of this <laughs> podcast, actually. Yeah. But uh, where will that get us? Um, but I think you know. Once again, I I totally agree with you. It was just a unique period in the development of the music and the way media was situated and structured. That, and luckily for me, that I happen to be the gatekeeper, so to speak of your MTV raps, where people got to hear and see Chuck D, KRS-One, X-Clan, you know, and numerous other rappers that had something to say with a political, socially aware uh, spin to it. Yeah, well, jump on in here, buddy.
2: Yeah, I'm definitely curious. I have a couple things. First, def- about those early days of MTV, I think it's sometimes kind of forgotten by people today just how slow mtv was to embrace black artists like across Ah, the board i mean i think it is forgotten a little bit i mean michael jackson had to fight to get billy jean on there you know and and it it was a big thing for a long time i'm curious how long were you involved before like what kind of fights did you have to get just to get umtv raps on the air or was that or was was the show kind of a response to some of the ugliness of their early history
3: It was really a response to the fact that records were selling like crazy with no marketing, no promotion, and they were missing out on a huge thing that was going on. It's simply that. Um, Records had come out, Curtis Blow. I mean, all the stuff that came out that you guys, I'm sure, are well aware of, uh, the Run-DMC's, the LL Cool J's, the things of that nature were selling like crazy with no marketing, no promotion, and of course, no music video. And not even rap radio in every city like it is now. So MTV was like, wait a minute, something's going on. And there was a guy by the name of, rest in peace, Ted Demi, who was a kid from Long Island that just grew up loving hip-hop. And a guy that I knew pretty good named Peter Daugherty, both of these guys. Peter just passed away a year ago. Ted close to 10 years ago, he Ted went on to become a very successful Hollywood filmmaker yeah, doing ref, some big movies. The yeah, the, the he did Blow, the last big movie he did with Johnny Depp, a movie called Blow. But anyway, these Ted was banging on the door, let's do a show, let's do a show. Peter Darty, who knew me, they finally decided, let's try it, and it went on the air, and the very first show had the highest ratings MTV had ever seen. They wanted to go check Nielsen to make sure they didn't make a mistake, but it was it was true. Somebody broke the meter. Somebody broke the meter. We we broke the meter. It was off the meter, as we say in the hood. And um, the Yarm TV raps was was born. And uh, you know, it was it's kind of the story of a lot of uh, contemporary culture in America that happens to have been made by people that look a little different than other people. People were very resistant. Like, oh my God, no, we can't do that. But People, when they heard, they were like, this is it, and this is what we want. So mainstream America dived all over it. People of every shade and complexion said, I like the way this music sounds. I'm tired of these long hair rock bands, headbangers, ball-type stuff, which, you know, I'm, I'm into some heavy metal. Yeah. I was into Motorhead a bit. But anyway, that's kind of how we kicked that door in. MTV just decided to do something extreme, and it worked out. It worked out. So now I want to
2: get back to, to upsetting the producers uh, and just getting you to say uh, F Donald Trump over and over. Uh, I'm curious because <laughs> uh, obviously, I mean, listen, you're a New York guy. You know, Trump has been a factor in every New Yorker's lives, whether they like it or not, really, for, for decades. I'm, I'm just curious, you know, just – what did you think of this guy? I, I feel like the way that New Yorkers feel about Trump, particularly people that have been in New York for for, for decades, yeah. and the way that the rest of the country feels about Trump are such different things. So as wow. a native New Yorker, someone who's there for so long, kind of go, get into. I'm curious what you, your thoughts about Trump during huh. during the '80s and the '90s and kind of leading yeah. up till now.
3: That's a good one. That's a good question. It even goes back deeper for me because I went to school. I grew up in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. Bedford-Stuyvesant in the section of Brooklyn, but I went to school out in the Coney Island area. I went to John Dewey. And Trump Village, which I guess was one of the developments that his dad had built and that young Donald would later take over, was out and it was, you know, I remember hearing about it as a kid and it was perceived as, well, that's the upscale development among a cluster of other buildings that were more for working class kind of people. So I know the name going way back, but then just a lot of ugliness and a lot of garish, you know, tasteless kind of tacky tackiness I've always associated with Donald Trump. But then I remember I I never personally met him, but there was a time in the mid-90s when like Puffy was on the rise, Puff Daddy, P. Diddy. He had a restaurant called Justin's in the 20s. And one night myself and a lot of other like, kind of hip hop executive pioneer type people like Russell Simmons, Andre Harrell, we were all hanging out, um, Alonzo Brown at a big table in Puff's restaurant, just yucking it up. And Donald Trump walks over and uh, sits at the table. Like, I think him and Russell, as we know, have had a long time friendship. And this is when all that started. And it was clear like he wanted to be in the mix with us and wanted to hang. And I remember going, wow, Donald Trump is even trying to be down with this. So those are my early Im- impressions, not much, ex- you know, all the tacky, garish, which of course connects with some of the hip-hop aesthetic at that time when hip, when the whole bling movement was in full swing, diamonds, gold, and platinum adorning, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, front row A-list hip-hop people, and Trump coming in at that time to hang out and be in the mix seemed sort of like, okay, you know, people want to sit at the table and be a part of all the fun that we were creating. But to see how he—I mean, I basically look at it in a nutshell. Like, the GOP allowed the Frankenstein monster to grow unabated Donald Trump. When they didn't shut him down on that Bertha nonsense back then, they allowed this to happen. So it's their— Uh, problem as well as all of ours now and I'm just make hoping November 8th we all get out get up tell a friend to tell a friend to tell a friend to vote baby
1: yeah it's it's a it's an interesting thing you know you think about you know um you know you go back to to Trump um his history here is um I mean uh, New Yorkers as Will suggested and you were talking about New Yorkers have kind of an interesting relationship with Trump right I mean, there's obviously a lot of people who are uh, have always thought of him. He's a major figure in New York City, right? He's been a huge figure in, in New York life for a long time, yeah. and and yet not, not a figure that a lot of people kind of make a lot of people make fun of, right? Um, but a guy who it's in, it's interesting given the number of the racial discrimination lawsuits against him, given. His, the, the things he said about the Central Park 5 at the time and yeah. continues to say today Psh, crazy you know all of that stuff that he was that he was not a more I mean it's funny to me that he was not a more demonized figure than he than, than, than he was I mean you, if you if you ask the question um, you know uh, before he ran for president before he launched the birther movement right if you'd ask the question I think around New York City to black and white of uh, citizens alike, hmm. what do you think about Donald Trump? Racist wouldn't have been at the top of their list.
3: You probably B- were, buffoon,
1: yeah. you know, mm-hmm. for some people, yeah. you know, Spy Magazine, short fingered, Bulgarian. Yeah, you know, people made fun of him for being garish. People made fun of him for you know branding everything, putting his name on everything. Yeah. People thought he was kind of a cartoon character, but he wasn't like someone who was r- routinely bil- vilified by the liberal press. Right. Even though he had a pretty bad record, You're right. right? Yeah. So it surprises me there was just a lot of more tolerance for him. You know, people like Bill Clinton were friends with him, right? Yeah, He was a guy who was accepted into polite company in New York, even though his people kind of made fun of him for the hair and other stuff. Yeah, yeah. But he wasn't like a, 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 a villainous figure here in the city. True. And now we look back at that history and stuff that gets pointed out on the debate stage, and people say, well, man, like he was, you know, committing... He was doing some both rhetorically yeah. and in terms of the policies at his apartments and his buildings. Mm-hmm. He was doing some stuff that now gets him roundly criticized. <clears throat> it's weird that in a city like New York, he was not more demonized.
3: No, that's a very good point. And I think that is emblematic of just how slick and slippery and slimy Donald Trump has always been. Right. Because he's been able to deflect and pivot, all those kind of things. And it's what a good con artist does. They make you believe something, or they have you looking one way when what you should be looking at, you're not seeing until it's too late. And so here we are with a guy that is clearly, in every sense of the word, a huckster, a con man, and a slime ball, really, for the things that we see he has done. Like, those front page ads, like, I remembered that front page ad. I remember it was right around the time Your MTV Raps happened. That Central Park 5 incident, I believe it was 1989. We went on the air in 88. So it was a big story at that time. And the city was still relatively polarized around racial lines. And so people, and they whipped that story into a frenzy, the Wildin incident in Central Park. It was a front page story for a long period of time in many dailies at that time. And Donald Trump just jumped out of nowhere with that ugly attitude and you know, and won't even back down on that stuff. And it's just, I think we now know, like we have to be very careful and look deeply at all these people. But back then, he was just a public figure. So there wasn't enough reason to, I guess, dig as deeply as people have dug now in terms of vetting and just, let's look at everything. Right. Let's turn over every stone. Uh, but
1: one of the things that's true about, about you, Fab, is that you are, in addition to being you know, one of the great kind of hip-hop popularizers and a connoisseur of that art form. You are also you also love just art in general, right? You're like a great appreciator yeah. of painting, sculpture, graffiti, you know, all that stuff, right? We were walking into the building here at Bloomberg just now, and you were checking out the art as we were coming in and oh, kind of no, commenting was, on Oh, no, it
3: was really tasteful. As far as office buildings in yeah. New York, all the work is not really super high level, but there was an Elinan Sui piece when you walk in. Yeah. He's one of the most renowned modern artist from Africa and he's in and, and in fact a lot of people don't understand. I mean I'm blessed to have done and do many different things, yeah. but making art is my foundation. So being a painter, exhibiting my work is the foundation yeah. from which everything else branches. Right. And then being a filmmaker I look at as as integral to my creative output. Right.
1: So so I'm curious about what you thought about this. When I think about this year, again, thinking about this political thing, right? I think about the artistic responses to Trump. You know, the, 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 there's been obviously in the realm of, if you consider television art, and I do, you know, yeah. you have the things that everyone points to, you to Saturday Night Live and, and Baldwin now playing Trump on a weekly basis. Yeah. But the thing that I thought was most powerful, and I pointed out earlier that I haven't heard, I mean, I've heard some hip hop that's been directed at Trump, but there's been nothing that's, you know, popped out and it's really captured the imagination. Right. But, but I think the thing that in most, the most striking example of a piece of public art that I've seen related to Trump, was that day when the nude sculptures
3: appeared. It was brilliant. In like six cities around the country. Talk about that. It It was incredible. It was a street art, graffiti protest element to it. Just, you know, making this... Garish-looking sculpture, which captured Trump in all of the way we most of us really see him now, and just leaving that there, I think in the place in New York was down in Union Square Park, yeah, right. which is a legendary place where where activists now gather. There's a long history of activism there, and it was just a perfect moment that you know achieved the. The perfect result, and uh, it, it it was just great. It made me think of the Dadaists and the Futurists and all these like Europeans that would that would you know those those uh, movements in European art history that would appreciate really taking it to a political candidate and inspiring artists to go that far. It's like an ex- an extension of the caricature, which is a part of right. political art and that's really what that was. It's like let's take this caricature of this of this ugly guy and make and and make it life-size. Let's make it larger than life. Yeah. Let's take off all his clothes and let's yeah. put him right there <laughs> on a very popular part of New York City. Yeah and the media jumped all over that was great i think i think part of the power of it though is that
1: like in the way the same way that one of the things that you know there's a there's a particular kind of power to art where especially when it's parody hmm. where you are able to make a point by just literally putting the words that the person actually spoke into the words of the parodist, right? So, you know, when Saturday Night Live did Palin, Sarah Palin, you know, Tina Fey would often just read things that Palin oh, actually said, Such, and you so and you you crack up, but it was actually stuff that Palin said. Exactly. Sim- exactly. Similarly,
3: Baldwin's doing this thing the with Trump Baldwin, now. Yeah, it's a high moment. for so Saturday the, Night Live. Yeah. So,
1: so the thing about that those sculptures is that part of the reason why they're so powerful is that that's actually kind of what he we imagine he looks like with his clothes off mm. it's not like like a grotesque caricature it's like yeah that's probably about how big his belly is you imagine he has a tiny little dick you know that's the thing right you look at that and go okay right that's 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 sort of why it's powerful right because yeah, you're exactly. like actually that's not really a cartoon that's really what he probably looks like nude yeah
3: especially yeah especially following the the primaries when it got to like a gutter toilet bowl level of discourse yeah. and then then to actually see that guy, boy, that was a that was a high that was a high point in yeah. this campaign. Yeah, go ahead, Willie. I just want to know what it
2: was like being on Luke Cage. I think that show is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Oh,
3: yeah. Yeah, you saw my little, yeah, Luke Cage is great. You know, the guy who wrote that, who's the showrunner, exec producer, Chao Hadari Koka, uh, came up as a hip hop journalist, wrote for The Source and other kind of publications. And then he's kind of worked his way up writing on different shows. And um, he was like telling me how he was going to make Harlem a character. And just, you know, Chael's very plugged in to the times in which we live. And it's amazing how relevant Luke Cage is. I mean, unfortunately, like, the whole idea of the bulletproof black man is such a needed situation where these crimes have been going on. But, yeah, like, it's just great to see the response to it. Also, there's that other Netflix show, The Get Down, which is also um, a lot of people are excited about just uh, focusing on New York in a unique way that's connected to the culture. Obviously, Luke Cage more contemporary, but with Chao obviously is embracing a lot of the 90s era of hip hop in the in the soundtrack with Andre Young and Ali Shaheed. Muhammad did amazing work. So hopefully it's a show that'll run a long time and it's got people buzzing. It's a lot of little um, Harlem history mention, reference, alluded to that I pick up on as a, as a resident in Harlem, but also uh, a lot of references to previous moments in the history of Luke Cage as a Marvel comic book character, which I didn't follow that closely. I was a big Marvel guy as a kid, but uh, I was more into the Black Panther uh, comic character than Luke Cage, but very exciting time right now with what's going on in TV in general. Let, let me ask you this, I mentioned before, I, I mentioned Black Lives
1: Matter in passing. Yes, you did. Um, just tell me what you think about. I mean, I'm I'm interested in the parallels there and lack of parallels between that and another important uh, or at least moment in this city, uh, New York City, which was the Occupy Wall Street movement. Yeah, but but just just first, you know, as you have seen this Black Lives Matter, uh, impulse and movement vanguard whatever you want to call it yeah emerge what, what's your assessment of that as a political force as a social force as an artistic
3: force yes I look at Black Lives Matter as a cousin in a sense of the Occupy movement kind of those kind of uh, somewhat leaderless movements that are not trying to have one figurehead running it all but they seem to be run by like a a committee, if you will, so sort of an improvement to a st- an extent of what the Occupy movement had, but the way they just hit the right uh, t- chord at the right time—that that was so needed—and how it has had a significant impact on the discourse from the from the top down in terms of the campaign. I mean, Hillary has definitely engaged with significant from the people at the top of the of the of the Black Lives Matter movement and referenced it, as did Bernie Sanders. Um, so I'm just impressed that they were able to kind of uh, do something at the right time, which has really resonated with a lot of people and made people st- sit back, stand up, and take notice. And um, it's just really great and impactful. And I'm also impressed how how women are in the forefront of these a of lot of what's happening activism-wise. You see a lot of women out front and center and I find that very um, inspiring and I like that.
1: Uh, we, we only have a few minutes left. Will, I'm going to like let you have one more question. I'm going to close it out, but uh, go right ahead. One of the things I think
2: also I, I've enjoyed kind of like going back and prepping for this interview was finding some of these great old clips of like you interviewing Tupac back like during the digital <laughs> underground days and like yeah, one of the YouTube
3: first – is full of my, some of my highlights. It's so yeah. fun. It's like how exciting like, – like
2: to me, you know, that is – like that kind of I think places you in a lot of ways as a connection between those early days, like the the Wu Tang Clan, like one of one of one of John's oh, uh, uh, ballewicks, yeah, Wicks. You know, like you had one of the first interviews with with, with them. I'm the I'm curious, first. like, like yeah, yeah, I mean that is an exciting thing. I'm curious when you saw some of those young talents, like do you, having gone through some of the wars yourself, a little bit of kind of like what fame and and kind of brings up. Did did you did they look to you as, as for advice? Did you what, what kind of things was just to see someone like Tupac at such a young age right before he t- took off? And the Wu Tang claimed the same way. That must have been very exciting.
3: It was very exciting. And what would what would be cool interesting for me. Even though I mean to a mainstream audience or to, to the amount of people that know of what I've done what I've done and what I do now, at that point it was very few. But you know, I star in, produced and did all original music for the first hip hop movie back in the early eighties called Wild Style. And all of those hardcore fans knew about that, which was which I was elated about. So so Tupac and the, the Wu Tang guys and most of the people that I would interview during the time of Yo really knew about me even before, pre, prior to Your MTV Raps. DJs always knew about me because I'd made this one record way back in the early 80s and I rapped in French. And at the end of the record, there's a sound that became a requisite scratching element. The record is called Chains the Beat. It's a sound that goes, ah, this stuff is really fresh, and, and DJs have cut that. I think up to just about a year ago, I was that was the most sampled song of all time. So just really blessed that there were things that rappers knew about. And yeah, Tupac and I had a really... Good French friendship. He, I still have the card that he given. I found it recently. We had given me his one eight hundred Sky Page number, and uh, he definitely would pick my brain for some advice here and there. And we definitely put a lot of smoke in the air, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so we're
1: sitting here uh, at the uh, really at the uh, at the end of the Obama era, and I think it's a good place to. <laughs> oh, boy. It's a good place to kind of land this conversation. Um, obviously, a, a hugely consequential presidency for the country. Um, yeah. Uh, historic in many ways. Or you could say a lot of cliched things about this, but uh, the one of the things that has struck me, there's been obviously an ongoing debate for eight years mm. about whether uh, among African Americans about whether Barack Obama has been black enough as president. And, and, and I mean wow. that in a in a respectful way. I mean, yeah, I mean, like, you know, has he talked enough about race issues? Has he represented the community strongly enough? Has he held himself back? Has he tried to be at times when he worried about D being too polarizing a figure? Right. Has he engaged on those issues in a way that that a lot of African-Americans hoped he would or expected he would. And it's changed over time. Yes, it has. I I think a lot of of African-Americans that we – interview on our show and that I talked to him in my life, you know, feel like he's gotten bolder and bolder over the course of the time and as he's yeah. gotten past re-election, uh, he's felt more free to engage on those issues. Right. Um just give me, you know, from the from the point of view I hate to make you a spokesperson no for doubt. No. for the for the hip hop community. Yes, but, I will be that. But, yes. but <laughs> what's your what's your what's your assessment on, on that question and whether, you know, at the end of eight years, obviously a lot of, I'm sure you have a lot of pride in Barack Obama, but what what's your assessment of of how well he has uh, dealt with the challenges and, and the opportunities of being the first black president.
3: Yeah, well, as one of the architects of the hip-hop movement as we know it, um, I, w- I will say that B- Barack Obama, who, and I just love saying his name every single time, Barack Hussein Obama, um, the real african-american if you will because black as we know it as you just talked about john is a is a social construct as is the actual as is white if you will these are social constructs so so that brings the question you know what is black you know what is black was once colored and was once negro prior so it's an evolving social construct that black folks have decided to kind of you know take hold of the writing. I think Obama has done an excellent job because, I mean, look, he was clearly the perfect uh, candidate for the job at the right time. And, you know, and then he's this nice blend of what America is all about. You know, he's this african father not african-american but he was he has a his dad was african his mother was a white american they came together made him um and then he he emerged balancing these two existences and being right in the middle of this whole um kind of idea that america is and um and emerged to kind of speak to all people and i think he's done it in a very skillful way i mean we, we could have had a president that could have been, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it just bodes the question, you know, what is black, if you will, when you just seriously sit down and think about it. But I think Obama has done a really good job, once again, speaking to all of us. and the flavor he has, his his jump shot, his being <laughs> able to like hit the right notes on a Critical Al Green song. Yeah. When he brushed that shoulder in the campaign against Hillary, I sat there and watched that, I'd be like, no, wait a minute. Is that a get that dirt off my shoulder, as in Jay-Z, yeah. or... Is that just a, a moment? Oh, it, it was Jay-Z. It was, it <laughs> it was clearly it was a, Jay-Z as we now Jay-Z, know. Yeah. And as we now know, I mean, so that's it. He's been 100% that. But I think he has defied what some of the social of the social construct has perhaps made cliche. Yeah. He has rewritten those rule books in, in amazing ways.
1: Yeah, I got to say, um, you know, one of the things this summer I was on I had a little time for vacation after uh, – after the conventions, and I was, I remember sitting there the day that his playlist came out, his Spotify playlist. Yes, that was so a nice one. He put out the Spotify, put the daytime list and the nighttime list, Ah, and and they're both great. I mean, he's got great taste in music, yeah. and, and you know, it, 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 a lot of it is black music, a lot of, there's soul on there, rhythm and blues, he's got a good taste in hip-hop, he's had a lot of hip-hop artists in the White House, mm. um, obviously, it was a place that gave in some ways, gave those the launching pad for Hamilton. You know, the, the wow, that's the, true. You know, the White House has been has been integral in a lot of ways. That's so
3: true. And wow. it's
1: like the first time it's happened. You know, it's like you talk. You think about Michelle Obama at the convention, talking about how she, you know, she goes wakes up every day and she's in this house built by slaves, where they now have invited. Wow. You know, some of the most prolific mm. and important artists of the cur- contemporary. African-American mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. who are there. I think that's one of his great legacies culturally is it some really of the is. things they've done, the poetry stuff they've done, yes. the musical stuff they've done. Uh, you know, you look at that playlist and you say, this is a guy who knows, who's connected to this culture in a really deep way. Yeah. I, I feel like, I'm sure you feel that, you, I know you want Hillary Clinton to win this election, but I'm virtually certain that you are, are going to be a little bit disappointed when you see her Spotify playlists because they will not be as good as his. <laughs> I'll
3: tell you a funny story. My daughter, who's now at USC, yeah. High Sparkle, was, do, um, <laughs> was um, just finished two years at Howard University, and I got her a gig at Vice. So yeah. two summers ago, her first college internship is working on the Vice music site, Noisy. And the first assignment, I thought she'd just be transcribing articles. Her first assignment with two other interns was critiquing Hillary Clinton's Spotify playlist yeah. just as the campaign started yeah. almost two years ago. Yeah. And to see these youngsters barely 20 years old, yeah. they were all freshmen yeah. dissecting Hillary's playlist and I'm looking at what picked and it was it was pretty clear like Hillary probably doesn't listen to all these songs. No. But it was a nice representation of a yeah. cross-section of the mainstream of America. So that was an, an ironic situation knowing that Obama's really got that flavor and is... Uh, and is definitely nodding his head to to the kind of stuff that me and you, John, I'm sure, are into. And uh, you, you know, you look at Hillary Clinton's playlist and you say to yourself, "This is a
1: playlist assembled by committee on the basis <laughs> yes, of some polling and some focus exactly groups." And you look at and you mark. look at Barack's playlist and he's got some relatively obscure Chance the Rapper cut on there. <laughs> and you say, "Okay,
3: that's Barack.
2: That's, that's Barack. Barack
1: Obama, <laughs> exactly."
3: Which is good, and I think we've all been better for it. And it's going to be, you know. By the way, I just want to plug: there's a movie coming out in December called Barry and yeah. I've got a nice little scene in there which is the second of the young Obama films um, that is uh, uh, coming out and this is a the Obama I one hope it's g- better than the first one yeah I, I, it, it seems like it's got a big buzz it was at the T- Toronto Film Festival and it's his time as a student at Columbia so yeah uh, all right, I'm really excited.
1: Fab Five Freddy, um, this has been one of my dreams, and the truth is, if I if if they'd let us be stay in here, I'd do this podcast for like two hours. We'd sit here and talk about. Um, oh my god the things we would talk about if we had the time we don't have the time and of course nah. no one who's listening to this podcast would probably want to listen because I would start to sound like uh, a disgusting suck up sycophant <laughs> and not, super fan it's okay. um, but it's great it's great to have you here Fab Five Freddy um, and I'm going to bring this now to an end thanks for coming by I'm going to bring this episode of the Culture Caucus podcast to a conclusion a merciful uh, but also delighted and delightful conclusion Will Leach tell me where, if you, if you I know if you're listening to this podcast you already know where to find it but just in case, where, did we, where would one find, if one wanted to hear Fab Five Friday talking about the 2016 presidential election on the Culture Caucus, where would one look? Well, if you wanted to, if you've listened to this podcast, you're like, wow, that was great. I have to tell my friends about this.
2: I will share this in the social media aspect. You <laughs> could uh, tweet out a link to our iTunes page. The best way to find this is on our iTunes page. Subscribe to us and give us a review. It makes it easier for other people to find the podcast. Of course, you can also find us on SoundCloud and BloombergPolitics.com.
3: All right. From me, John Heilman, and from you. Will Leach. And from you, Fab Five Freddy, a big fan of yours, John, a big (laughs) fan of The Circus, and you on MSNBC, and go Hillary! (laughs) All right. (laughs) That
1: concludes this episode. We will see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. (laughs)